but I think it's like super, super important that we hold like in one hand, this just deep romance, because I think that that is like the core of what that like, like the soil is calling us to this interaction, this, this cycle of life and death. And the, like, there's just this beauty in that. Um, and we have to see that and be driven by that. And then in that other hand, hold that tension of saying like, yeah, but the world still turns. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we still have, you know, like it still costs money to, to, to live and to exist and to feed ourselves and our families and, and you know, all of the, uh, fill in the blank. You know, we, I, I, I want to, I, I want to see a drastically different economy evolve in this, in this nation, in this world, but it still has to be an economy. You know, we still right. have to exchange goods and services in a way that we can rely on each other and have resilience. So there's just like this dance back and forth. Hey, 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 friends. Welcome to the Naked Podcast. I'm your host, Martisa Williams. In this space, we'll explore a whole range of practices for our individual and collective freedom. My entire life has been spent soaking up practice after modality, after protocol, to free my body and soul. Join me in conversations with the world's foremost thought leaders on topics ranging from health to sex to spirituality to justice. So, are you ready to get naked with me? Well, let's talk about it. Have you tried a natural wine yet? It's like becoming more of a thing and I'm so, 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 so excited that our friends over at Living Roots Wine & Co. have bottled their first Pet Net, which is a natural sparkling wine made from organic, local Cayuga white grapes, wild fermented and unfiltered. It's refreshing, complex, with juicy grapefruit, chalky characters, zippy acidity, and a textural bone-dry palate. What I love about this sparkling wine is not only is it natural and it's local, but it makes every night feel a little extra special. If you want to give this unique wine a taste, you can use code NEKKID, N-E-K-K-I-D, for 10% off your order at livingrootswine.com. Now let's get back to the show. Hello, dear ones. Welcome back to the Naked Podcast. It's that time of month again. How are you? How's your heart in this crazy world only a couple weeks out from the election? How is the world sitting in your body these days? I'm super excited because we had our kickoff call for the release intensive this past Saturday, and it's with an amazing group of humans, and I'm super, super excited about um, getting to know everyone and building these connections. Um, So yeah, I will keep you apprised on how we're doing in this three-month journey together Um, as we move through it. But I'm really, really excited to get into this week's episode 
But um, before we do that, I do want to acknowledge and send my love and raise just some eyebrows to what's happening currently in Nigeria. If you are not familiar with what's going on in Nigeria, I implore you to go ahead and get familiar. Begin to realize that um, state brutality, police brutality among black and brown bodies is not something that is unique to um, Americans and American soil on American soil. And unfortunately, in um, Nigeria, unfortunately, it is um, something that happens among Black folk, to Black people, by Black people. And um, yeah, I'm educating myself on the issue, so I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm an expert or share whatever, but um, I did want to, you know, bring it to your attention if it isn't already. Um, and just really begin to keep an eye on that, support, donate the activists that are on the ground um, fighting against that state-sanctioned violence. So sending all of my love, all of my energy um, and support to Nigeria. Let's go ahead and move into this week's episode with Eric Hoopert, which I had a fantastic conversation with. Um, Eric is the owner of Deep Root Farm, which is a local farm in Macedon, New York. It's about 20 minutes outside of um, downtown Rochester. Um, And their whole ethic is really around Um, building and uh, cultivating healthy soil. So they use organic growing practices, avoiding pesticides, fungicides, all the nasty stuff, um, and really believe in putting into the soil, supporting the soil, using minimal till, um, using organic compost, green manures, all those things to help really regenerate the soil and the landscape that the, um, the farm is on. Um, in this episode, Eric and I, we talk about a bunch of stuff, but mostly we talk about food and food practices and the connection that food has to our spirit and understanding a sense of place and what that has to our spirit, what that does for our spirit and community. Um, we talk about romanticism in the whole back to the land movement and how beautiful it is, but also how, um, you know, you have to be careful with over romanticizing, um, building sustainable economies and food infrastructure. We talk about moving from shame to connection. Um, we talk about what no tilling practices are, are, and, um, the case for eating local and how important eating close to home is on the environment, on the local economy, Um, and on our ability to build community with one another. We talk a little bit about food justice and land access, proximity and accountability, building connection through hunting because Eric is a hunter. So of course we talk about that. Dealing with death and our complicity with it. And then how you really find God in the soil and all the magic that the earth has to bring to us. 
this is a really awesome conversation. I was so, so glad to have met Eric and be able to talk with him about this. Um, before we lead into the episode, I do want to offer a trigger warning because we do talk about hunting. We talk about um, harvesting animals. So if that's something that is um, triggering for you or unsettling for your spirit, um, I do want to let you know that towards the back half of the episode, we do talk about that. So buckle up. This is a lovely episode and I hope you learned something. Hello, hello. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. For sure. So the first question I ask all my guests is, um, what made you, you? Yeah, that's, um, I, I've been thinking about that for a while since you sent the email and um, since I've listened to the, the episode with Daniel and, you know, like knew that that was kind of, you know, what was coming. Um, and man, that's like, obviously, I'm sure like everybody says that's uh there's a lot of layers to that one. Um, yeah. I feel like the, the, my knee jerk though, we'll go with that. Um, that's something that it, it kind of made me think, um, that was a question I used to think a lot more, a lot for most of my life is like, uh, I was seeking a very concrete answer mm. to question. Um, you know, it was, there was so much, uh, I feel like, you know, adolescence through college, you know, kind of figuring out who you are. And uh, I put so much weight on the, uh, firmness of that feeling confident and like you know this is who I am and when I read that from you and you know the past five to ten years of, of my own personal evolution um, I feel like that idea of identity and who I am has become much less uh, like static and a lot more kinetic a lot more moving um, and uh, so I love it I think that's a better question even now, you know now than then um, you know I think the more I grow up and the more experience I have, um, that's like, uh, that, that answer almost changes every day. Mm. Um, but, um, a lot of things, you know, getting, you know, that's obviously the, the kind of ethereal approach to it, but I love um, it. The, the more, the, you know, the more straightforward response, um, just a lot of different <laughs> through, through my history. I, I've, I've developed a lot and evolved a lot in my own way, but I grew up uh, like in a very religious household. My dad was a pastor for 25 years. Um, I've kind of gone my own way um, in, in understanding my own faith and spirituality, and, and a, a lot of that will come out, I think, as we talk about um, farming and, and growing food and soil, and um, that has been a maybe the largest catalyst in that evolution for me. Um, but that being said, I still deeply value um, my history. And, and there's this like tension that I, I'm trying to get more and more comfortable with and like embracing, um, not being just like this jaded person that has changed, you know, like, oh, like I, you know, I, I grew up in a more conservative household or a, a religious background. And now I'm just like, unidentifying with that and moving into this new evolution, but really understanding that, you know, that largely is, is a set part of a set of experiences that got me to where I am. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, wrestling with that tension of how we can like love and um, depart from a lot of our past experiences. Um, but that was a huge part of my life, a huge, huge part of my life um, up through college um, that, that kind of catalyzed studying, um, economic development, uh, nonprofit sector, intercultural studies, um, that type of work, and um, still kind of left me very open-ended. Mm -hmm. And 
slowly through just different experiences and exposure, um, land became just this focal point. Um, well, I think it was always a focal point, you know, um, just alongside of, of those more um, family and traditional based experiences uh, on just like a more day to day level. I spent most of my life in some aspect of uh, relationship with food, whether it's like um, I've worked in every every part of the service industry, um, you know, and, and restaurants and food and was always kind of connected like that. I've, I've lived in a number of different places, had some experiences um, to live overseas and uh, that, that was in my early 20s and like food, uh, I lived in Spain for a year and mm-hmm. food so exponentially more a part a paradigmatic part of of the day-to-day life um in a much more expressed way and uh i think connected even deeper on that level um still kind of on the table side of things if you will um with a relationship to, to food specifically um but then that kind of married into uh these studies and um going back to grad school after a few years um after undergrad and diving into international development and that's where agriculture really I um, became a huge part of my uh, academic exposure Mm. um, some really formative authors and um, yes so I mean it's just you know kind of an all over the place conglomeration of things Um, there's a specific author that I read in grad school that kind of to paraphrase um, that that became and still is maybe like the most formative kind of I, I guess if I had like a a thesis to understand where I wanted to go. It would be, um, he essentially said like in talking about an ethic of place and, um, identifying through our sense of place through the ground under our feet. Um, he says, you know, place is never just physical space, but it's space that is freighted with shared experience. Mm. Um, and, and that like was this lightning bolt of like articulation that up until that point in my mid twenties that, um, was just like, this is the thing. This is the thing that's connecting these dots to these experiences, to, to what's compelling me about, um, you know, my spiritual experiences and journey, what's compelling me about, like, how I want to pursue a vocation, the relationships that I have. It's like, man, it's all kind of like this physical space under me is this connection point. It te- it's what physically tethers us to the other, to other people in our lives and these other experiences. And all of those things work together to, to, you know, make us who we are. And then obviously in my case, make me who I am. So, you know, that's a little bit of a round answer to that question. But, um, you know, I think that at this moment today, you know, uh, these shared experiences up until then um, in all these different parts of my life are, are in the process of, of making me who I am and what I do. I love that. I love when I hear an answer like that, specifically bringing in the earth into it because it's like I feel like so many of us will answer that question and when I answer that question I it the earth had nothing to do with it but it's like the earth has everything to do with all of it yeah that's just something that you know I it's I just it's consumed me um I think in 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 a good way that but just this idea that you know it's when I was at that point, this like kind of crossroads of like really needing to 
figure my shit out. Like, you know, a guy going mid twenties, we, my wife and I were down in Virginia through our undergrad. Um, uh, we were both from up here. We started dating when we were 14. We went to school down in Virginia. We came back up here after about seven years and, um, was, was not the intent of where we were supposed to be. We we're actually at that time working for a nonprofit, getting ready to move to, um, Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa, wow. um, work with like essentially kind of a, this like a faith-based Peace Corps type program. I started grad school after coming back here and having a few years of kind of unknowing. That's where we we're getting yeah. at. Um, and, and like, all right, I kind of needed to, to jumpstart when, when this program kind of fell through and our jobs fell through for a number of reasons going to Cote d'Ivoire. We were just kind of reset here and my wife's company is based here and um, her family's company. And she kind of fell into that and really started developing her vocation and, and getting her feet under her there. And that's where I was just like, all right, my identity up to this point had been that very concrete, like, all right, this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do next. And um, when that kind of got pulled out from under me, I just went stagnant for a, a few years in like this vocational sense because um, I was really depleted. Like you mm. feel exhausted. I really, really hard to define, um, you know, who we are and what we need to do with our lives to find purpose, especially our generation. Um, and, and that was, it was fatiguing to have put so much time in, into maybe forcing that and then having the rug pulled out. And it was like, all right, maybe I am just supposed to be like any other person and just <laughs> grab and do this, you know, and, and we're all protagonistic, you know, we all obviously want to be the hero of our own story. And so we right. kind of simplify others experiences and elevate our own. And when things go wrong or we experience any type of micro trauma um, in like, you know, this case, very micro for me, but it felt huge because it was like, you know, our life was on a trajectory and then it wasn't. And I was just exhausted from that. I'm like, you know, that's maybe this like, hero of the story thing is just I'm just way over hyping it I just <laughs> settle in and like get a job and we you know I tried that for a few years and did a lot of cool things and met a lot of cool people and really started to settle into to this place again to Rochester and western New York which was a really uh, important season to go through and really I mean I just I love this space that this physical land this this place that we live and call home I um, mean yeah. it allowed me to maybe start falling in love with that to the point where eventually um, a few years later, it was like the, the flip switched again. And I felt like, okay, I can like re-engage. I should re-engage this process, but it was, it was still unknown. So many people um, that I studied with and kind of when you enter that world of um, especially like, you know, humanitarian work and the nonprofit world, there's, there's so much direction. Like I'm entering this to land at X, like, you know, right. So water or education, um, you know, or literacy or whatever, you know, like people kind of have many people have at least some type of notion or they're like the CEO types that want that are like really good at the fundraising and and like the marketing side. And um, that in and of itself became a, a really kind of tiresome thing for me when I began to really fully understand that nine out of every 10 jobs in the nonprofit world is raising money for the nonprofit and the institution, which isn't inherently bad. I think that there's some problems there, but you know, I think most of it is inherently good. It's just, it just changes. I, I realized that I wanted to a much simpler life and mm -hmm. um, and was so fortunate to, to, at that time, when I entered grad school, um, kind of unbeknownst to me, enter this program that was largely, I mean, stuff that it wasn't about, like, an agrarian lifestyle or, or even farming or agriculture as a means of community development, but so much of the of uh, the program and the content and the syllabi from random professors um, 
were, was framed around agrarian philosophy as a means of understanding um, economic development and community development and like societal infrastructure. And it just, it, it was complex enough to like connect the dots for me, but simple enough to be like, this is it. Like I to, to kind of coming back to your initial point of like the earth, land, the soil, I'm like, it's, it's, it was there all along. Right. It was there the whole time. Like, the, the, you know, the answer is like, I want to work the ground under my feet. Like, there's nothing more sacred than that. There's nothing simpler or more complex than that at the same time. And, it, and again, the idea that like, this is really, I could have, I could work my way up some ladder in, in an organization that a lot of great people are doing good work in um, with the sole goal at that time being like, how do I reach, well-intended, but you know, kind of weird and twisted to be like, how do I reach the most amount of people? It's, it was very like numbers driven. Like mm-hmm. I, have, I, I just want to have impact. I want to have significance. Um, and just understanding through authors like Wendell Berry and, and, and just re- looking at like community organizers throughout history, um, it's like, man, everything of importance downtown. I'm not You're like, at the train station. I actually work um, right on Railroad Street. Oh, nice. So I know that train. <laughs> um, you know that like everything of significance that has happened in this world happened with one person connecting with another. You know, and, and I think that we just would all be better served to get a lot smaller in our scope mm. of impact and, and, you know, ironically then start probably making a much more significant change, um, you know, and that obviously transcends this individual conversation. I think, you know, things like humanization and empathy and uh, nuance are all things that we're um, just dramatically suffering from the lack of right now. And, and that was this connection point for me. And, and that's what kind of jump-started this, like, man, it's as easy as this. I, we were already connected with CSAs and, and um, some local small farms. And we had been a member of one for about four years, like this, since we had been back in New York. And uh, so this was halfway through this two-year program um, out of a school in Philadelphia. And I just started talking to Megan, my wife, and was like, hey, like, I think I got what I was coming for. Like, mm. you know, and I think that, um, you know, like this was this first year, that, that year of grad school, so I didn't finish this, this graduate program. I don't have my master's, but I would 100 times out of 100 times pay the money for one, that one year, that formation, that did far more than like the completion could ever do. Um, and I, I called up the farm and it just so happened that um, there was a woman that was buying the farm from the woman that started the farm that year. And we were, she was moving to new land and kind of starting from literally the ground up, other than the fact that we had this huge customer base already, which just made it a complete and utter shit show that was amazing. <laughs> opportunity um but uh, i just reached out to her and kind of shared where i was at and what i wanted to do and how like i just felt compelled to, to get my hands in the dirt and she took me on and uh that was eight years ago now almost eight years ago and we um i got to participate in literally you know just building this farm from the ground up with her and was there for four years and and started my own thing three years ago oh my gosh so tell me You know, so it's like a dream. I feel like so many people specifically, um, for lack of a better word, but the hippie kind of, you know, back to the ground, back to the grass, you know, that kind of person whom it's me. I'm talking about myself. (laughs) (laughs) 
um there is this kind of rom this romantic sure. romantic romanticization i don't know if that's the word but like of getting back to the earth getting back to the land cultivating the earth there's a huge movement of people doing that not only just like in their backyards but like me i live in an apartment my whole balcony is like covered in plants, covered in food, covered in my house plants, covered in all these, in herbs and all these different things. And so what do you say to the individual who's like got this romantic view yeah, about yeah, yeah. like working on the land da, 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 cause I, I feel like it's amazing, but shit ain't sweet either. Like it's not <laughs> super. Like, and that's like, that's my own danger. And like, especially in this context, right? I'm like so stoked and we just feed off each other and like get going. And like, I am like, you know, like I'll just spit romantic idealism <laughs> of this lifestyle, like till I'm blue in the face, but it's so emphatically not romantic. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's just, you know, and that's, that's an individual thing. That's a personality thing. There's a generational thing that's both good and bad. I think about, you know, like our age class that like, you know, we're discontent with, with the monotony of maybe the, the, the life experiences of, that we observed from our parent generation, the generation before. Um, and I, I totally want to caveat that with like the utmost respect and things that we need to learn. I think that we, we get wrong and we throw it all out. <laughs> um, but I am so right there with you. But it's also kind of bullshit too, you know, like there's right. a realism that can exist in this tension. I think like this word that I just always come back to is that tension. Like, mm. like, we, like we just need to be comfortable with this like romantic, realist tension, like this pragmatic approach to understand that like this isn't just, you know, like petting plants and rubbing. I mean, I pet my plants in the greenhouse and I talk to them and I do all these things, but that's not like, you know, at the end, like also like, well, we'll get, I'm sure we might get down this road a little bit. I won't go too far on this rabbit hole, but like, you know, th there's like something too that I feel deeply, deeply passionate about in the sense that um, my fear a lot of times is our romantic approach to this um, is the antithesis of like, a giant, so many of us want to do this to essentially give a big middle finger to the man and right. say, hey, like we don't need to have this military industrial complex when it comes to agriculture, when it comes to our food landscape and system and all these things. Like, you know, it goes far beyond just like what makes me feel good during the day. But like, I really want to be an active role in realigning our food system and creating these proximity-based economies that are much more um, viable. Um, so again, like to kind of, I'll get back to kind of the other direction and I'm sure we can head the other way too. Um, but there's something that like, that is what keeps me honest. I think that's what needs to keep us mm. honest. Like, Hey, like, like you said, like shit gets real. Like, yeah. and this is like if I, if we actually want to help make a different way or harken back to an older way or probably a version of both moving forward, like we have to prove economic viability. Like, mm. so I have to run a successful business. Like, mm. I, have to, I have to show, and, and all of us, small farmers, organic, regenerative farmers, have to be able to demonstrate that, like, you can actually do this profitably. Like, we can be, we can participate with the earth. We don't have to, like, like oppress the ground in order to be economically viable and, and to, to be profitable. And, and we actually have to do that in order to guide a new way forward or else all we're going to be is these little pockets of, 
codependent food meccas that aren't really supplying anybody necessarily, but it's a little bit more of that like hyper idealistic pipe dream. And, and that's a little tangent to eat and I don't want to do that. No, it's good. But I think it's like super, super important that we hold like in one hand, this just deep romance, because I think that that is like the core of what that like, like the soil is calling us to this interaction, this, this cycle of life and death and like there's just this beauty in that um and we have to see that and be driven by that and then in that other hand hold that tension of saying like yeah but the world still turns like Mm -hmm. you know you still have you know like it still costs money to, to to live and to exist and to feed ourselves and our families and and you know all of the fill in the blank you know we i i i want to I, I want to see a drastically different economy evolve in this in this nation in this world, but it still has to be an economy. You know, we still right. have to exchange goods and services in a way that we can rely on each other and have resilience. So there's just like this dance back and forth. Um, so yeah, you know, I think it's just I I very my my innate knee jerk is to definitely just be romantic about it, and I am. Um, but yeah. it's real too. So, like to to what I I guess that in in a lot of ways is what I would say to the to to you or whoever else. But also like to lean more into that romance too. Like start the relationship. You know, like start that relationship. So I you know I mentioned Wendell Berry, and he's certainly I would have to say by far the most formative influence on my journey. Um, I've read almost every piece of nonfiction that he's that he's put on paper. Um, and one thing that, that is like, uh, you just can't, I think, say and embed enough is he has this idea. And then I thought, of it, you know, when you, when you talk about like, all right, you're in this urban setting and you have just like a porch or a little piece of concrete to put pots on. Um, he has a, a, a real well-known saying that says there are no unsacred places. There are sacred or desecrated places. Mm. Um, you know, and that's such like this beautiful, beautiful reminder that, that like there is, there is nothing that's that's inherently unsacred. You know, we don't have like it doesn't matter if you have a thousand acres or a uh, a concrete stoop. Like we like we wherever we exist, the physical place, this ethic of understanding our physical place has to start with us fully owning that it is sacred or it is desecrated, and we can be the deciding factor in that in in our experience today. You know, like. We, uh, we, we can't change necessarily what, you know, we could step into a desecrated place, um, but, but inherently, you know, like just this, like the earth is sacred and, and yeah. everywhere we are, we're all on this planet together. So, you know, like you're, you're talking about this like sea of green that you have in this kind of compact space, like that's a sacred place to connect with soil. It, just as much as it is, you know, me standing on my little five acre, but seems huge in comparison to yours, but, or thousand acres, you know, to the next guy down the street or whatever. Like, I just love that idea. And that's certainly where I feel like we, it's important for us to always start the conversation um, because it orients us, you know, like mm-hmm. if, if I've, when I need to first orient myself towards the idea that like, man, this is like, this is a sacred space. Um, and, and the decisions I make in it, um, you know, either, either foster that and, and partner with that, um, or they work towards its desecration, um, you know, and, and again, even that, like, obviously, like, um, 
you know, I think that there's a, a scale to that, a scope. Like we can't just be um, self-deprecating like every time that we like, you know, if you've ever used a baggie or thrown away a paper, <laughs> you know, like I think we can carry it too far. Like, you know, we have to, we have to understand like, um, and this is something I really appreciate about some of the conversation we had with Daniel. Like, it's not about removing ourselves from the equation. Right, right. You know, we are actors in this equation and we should be here. Like, we need to own the fact that we all deserve to be here. Yeah. Um, we also have, um, you know, an obligation to the decisions we make and a responsibility there. And again, that's just tension. You know, that's like that beautiful tension of like, man, I have like this capacity for destruction, but I also deserve to be here. Mm. like because the universe put me here yeah and and i am not undeserving by nature you are not undeserving by nature like you know and and like let's like wrestle with that and get to and and you know and that we we all have our unique expressions of that but that's really i guess like that core for me of like all right the decisions i make and how i my growing practices, um, how I interact as a spouse, how I interact as a parent, like all these day-to-day decisions I make vocationally, relationally, and otherwise, like I want to try, I, I try to make through that, that lens, you know, right, like, right. like let, let, let's wrestle with that tension. I'm not inherently, un- like if I fucked up today, that doesn't mean that I no longer deserve to be here today or tomorrow, you know, but what am I going to do? Like I still have culpability. And so like, let's, let's work through that together. You know, yeah, it's a fun, hard thing to do. Yeah, no, I love it because I think that's like the only way to be, right? Like it's only you can't sit in a space of shame and and disconnection because like that's all it is. Is like I heard recently, who is it that said it? Thea Monier said that like shame only separates you from me. Yeah, and I think when we have we operate from a space of shame in our personal relationships and in our internal relationship in the, with our relationship to the world, it just continues to separate. And then we yeah. lose the ability to access the sacred. We lose the ability to access the um, mutual aid that can be cultivated through relationship yeah. with others and the earth. And that's like, you know, there's, that's like kind of the fundamental, like step one of growing food too, is like breaking the ground, you know, like, you know, you'll, how, I don't know, you know, how connected you or your listeners might be, I'm sure all different levels of like different farming practices, but you obviously a lot of people will hear, you'll hear a lot of now, you know, more and more about like the rise of this idea of like no-till middle which I wouldn't rise is a bad word because it also has been around for all of time um you know just a new new wave and understanding as we you know we kind of just continue to repeat ourselves can you Um, explain what that is what no-tilling yeah so this idea I mean I I'm sure if I explain it and someone else you know would write you and be like ah the guy's ridiculous this is what it is whatever but you know like the the the, you know the maybe 30,000 foot view is uh, like this idea that, you know, anytime we disturb the soil. And so this is what I was getting to with your point too, of like, you know, just the the first step in in growing something and creating a context for life is, is kind of ripping the ground open, you know, it's breaking Mm -hmm. the ground, you know, there's something like, in some ways kind of violent, no, not in some ways, like there's something very like violent about putting a seed in the ground. Um, And, you know, we, we have, have 
all too slowly under started to understand, you know, in this conventional, more industrial approach um, and more mechanized approach to agriculture as we kind of take the natural system out of it um, and natural relationships out of it. We get it, you know, we have uh, more kind of for the to oversimplify things, you know, you've got the standard kind of conventional approach to agriculture, which would maybe traditionally be more like high tillage. So you're, you're disturbing the soil all the time. Um, okay. Every time for weed control, uh, every time that you're prepping to plant a new bed or put in a new crop, you're tilling the soil. You're tilling it and tilling it and tilling it and tilling it. And every time, you know, soil is this complex structure of, of organisms and relationships um, and it's this map and it, and it has and it requires certain things, namely um, air and, and waterways and roadways and, and, and um, space. And so you've got like, you know, tilth, like the texture of soil. Um, you know, we want it to be airy and loose so that it can, um, you know, things can grow out of it and that water and oxygen can come in it and through it and microorganisms have a place to exist. Um, and every time that we till, we're pulverizing it and you're essentially taking, it's hard to, you know, explain just like uh, non-visually, but like, you know, you think of like this kind of fluffier, like context that has air pockets and all of this. And it's because there's aggregate pieces of soil that are, are you know, you've got a, a piece here and a, and a piece next to it. And they're kind of like big and connected and just the, the right um, balance. And then when you come in and you essentially just beat the shit out of it, um, right. a, a bunch, you take those two bigger pieces and they turn into 20 smaller pieces. And as they settle, they settle tighter. And there is, mm. and there's less room for oxygen. There's less room for water. There's less room for root development. Um, it, it becomes eventually too compact for uh, subsoil life, like worms or other microorganisms or, um, you know, other, other animals to, to have this, interaction happening beneath it so we're compacting the ground over and over and over and over and over again and then you know we're driving on it over and over again with our tractors our equipment and you know so we're compacting it so a response to that and again i don't mean it as like a new development but um you know there's kind of this growing wave again of understanding and really even in the conventional world unfortunately i think the response is problematic um because like, so it's like, all right, we need to disturb the soil as little as possible because we wanna keep intact soil structure. We wanna keep those highways for water and oxygen and animal life and microorganisms um, as intact and as vibrant as possible. Um, and as we continue to let more plant matter on top of it die from cover crops or, or residues from, um, you know, like the, the crops that we've harvested out of the field or maybe putting compost on there, uh, we want that organic matter on top to build and eventually over lots of time become um, humus where, you know, we've got just this like beautiful soil structure that's just designed for life to thrive in it. Um, but that only, ha you know, every time that we touch the soil, that diminishes, that has the potential to diminish that more and more. Um, so that's this idea like of, of people kind of, if just uh, the everyday backyard garden or whatever is un unfamiliar at all with it, you know, when we're talking about no-till, that's what we're talking about is, is minimal soil disturbance essentially to keep soil structure and so the, the web of life under the ground as, as healthy and vibrant as possible. Now, the problem is, and even conventional farms are understanding that. I mean, you know, that's, that's the... Of, you know, down the road, that's when we end up with the net result of, you know, the, 
things like the Dust Bowl and the in the Great Plains, and you know it's it's overproduced and and overcompacted, and we let runoff and wind and all these things carry our our topsoils away because we don't have good structure. We don't necessarily have good root structure from our cover crops, or co you know the soil's not being protected. Um, but the problem is, you know, like that on on a more conventional level, um, that the the less these big farms are tilling, a lot of times that tillage and soil contact is for like weed suppression. So we're just, they're just spraying it more, you know, because we're tilling it less. So because we want to keep soil structure and that's good. Um, and that's a step in the right direction, but there's still a management system that requires some type of external input for weed suppression, you know, and, um, and, and it just becomes a really complex issue. Um, and, and, and again, that's true, you know, of, to, to harken back to one of, you know, one of the first things I said are just about how impactful, how much I've learned. Like the, um, I, I feel like not in like a, like a kind of a shtick kind of way. Like I genuinely feel like, you know, like a, a student of mm. soil. Like it just teaches you so much. It teaches us and it teaches you so much that goes far beyond just uh, teaching me everything, you know, far beyond just like learning about farming. But, you know, in this context, like, the soil is teaching us that like problem solving is nuanced and complex and it is and is interwoven. You know, like there is, I'm not sure there is ever a case in life or in any issue where there is a singular solution to a singular problem because we right. are just way too connected, yeah. um, uh, you know, as, as just living beings in a living earth, like that we're just so, we're way too connected that one thing could solve one problem. Like we need to look at the, like the regress here, like, you know, and, and, and what are these decisions? Um, how are they impacting this decision and the next one and the next one and the next one. And there's these, these interactive relationships happening. Yeah. I think and I, it kind of goes back to this like shame and separation piece of being like, you can't even know a problem if you don't know the thing and the systems yeah. around it. You don't know the people that's involved. You don't know the organisms that are involved. You know, you don't have relationship. Then how can you come in and try and solve a problem that you don't even know where it came from? Yeah. And that's, yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of problems, I want to I want you to expand a little bit on um, kind of like where our food system is now and how fucked we are, because I don't even I honestly can't even talk to it because it's like so such an overwhelming problem to me. Yeah. Especially when I think about it from like a justice standpoint and from access standpoint, it like really, I really struggle with it, but I'm really interested to know kind of your knowledge about where, where we've gone wrong and then maybe some of those solutions to the problem. Yeah. And I'm certain, I mean, you know, that question is certainly like way too big for my shoes. It's, huge. Um, it's so huge. And I'm certainly not an, like a, a food systems and supply expert by any stretch, but you know, these, these types of issues, like in my own small way and like, like I, they're what largely what drives me and keeps me curious and learning about the things that I, I do learn about or want to learn about and, and do, because I think that we are, you know, in a pretty precarious spot. And, um, you know, and, and like, that's where like, you see all sides of it too. And I, I do have this like weariness of, um, I just personally, my personality is just like really, really like uh, Jekyll and Heidi with like pragmatism and romanticism, you know, then so like in some ways, like, 
I don't think that it like, I think that like to hearken to your earlier comment, which I am very much in this camp of like, you know, back to the land, granola. Um, <laughs> that's, that's definitely how I would self-identify largely. Um, but there's some, there's some problems in there too, you know, and I think in some ways we can become almost too alarmist about certain things um, without getting down to like the complexity of it. And so like this, this is a perfect example, I guess. Um, and then this will kind of lead into to your question. So like, I, I think largely the conversation needs to start. And in my mind, even in some ways, because I think one leads to the other, um, before like to just start with like, all right, we like, we need to shift agriculture to like exclusively organic production, you know, that type of thing. Like we need to get toxins out of, out of the system. And we do, we, we absolutely do. But I think that um, just in my own small, humble opinion, that I think the most important place to start the conversation and something I mentioned in passing is proximity. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, I think our biggest, one of our biggest and most dangerous problems is that um, we do not have proximity-based economies or proximity-based food systems or food landscapes. Um, you know, we, our food comes from all over the world. Most of us don't have any clue where it comes from. Um, we just know that it comes from the grocery store. And, um, and I think that that is a problem. I think that, and, I, and, I, and this is where I'm like, you know, there's still a pragmatic part. I'm certainly not saying that, uh, you know, like 80, 90%, 100% of our, of Rochester, Western New York's food supply needs to come within 200 miles. Like that's, that's not a pragmatic solution because that's not a realistic solution. However, I think that I heard this number of like an, uh, a few years ago from, um, I'm going to, probably pretty badly misquote it, but there's a big margin here. Um, <laughs> uh, from Chris Hartman at Headwater, who's a, who's a super solid dude. Um, but he was, uh, he threw out some numbers. It was like five or six years ago about uh, Rochester's, like a, a, an overhead, like a overall study on like food dollars in, in our region, greater Rochester area. Um, and I'll just fill in blanks because I'm not exactly sure, but say it's somewhere around 500 million is what we spend on food. Um, it was like something like less than 1% of that is that is, is going to like the local market share. Um, you know, so that's certainly, even if that's off by a few percentage points now or whatever, I mean, we're far, far, far from being anywhere near a proximity-based economy. And we're talking about like a really vibrant agricultural region. You know, we have yeah. a lot of growing capacity and lots of farms. Um, so like, to me, when I start thinking of like, all right, food systems and solutions, it's like, man, I don't want to be unrealistically idealistic and say, I think that, you know, 95% of our food should come within a hundred miles, but like imagine the impact of 10% did or 15 or 20 or even 40 or 60, maybe like, let's get really crazy. <laughs> like, and, and now we're talking about impacts that go like far, far beyond. And this, we're talking this interconnectedness far, far beyond just food growing practices. We're talking about economic, like you're talking about justice. Like we're talking yeah. about like, Think of like the, the potential equity that, that could be distributed through a more resilient proximity-based food system, you know, because as, as amazing as they are and as good, as much good as they do, like community gardens are not going to change the food desert 
right. issue, you know, right, like, right. like small nonprofits that are doing amazing things with like some of the best people in the world are not going to pivot $200 million of our, uh, you know, like of how we buy and consume food and then create those jobs. And, and, and hopefully when we're talking about this revolution, we can actually instill some equity and some justice through that, you know, from, from start to finish. And we can see how it's all connected and that it all feeds the same solution, um, you know, and it, and it all in its own way combats the same problem. Um, so I would like the answers to that. I mean, I'm not the one. I love it. I love your answer. Like, you know, but that, like, I think that here's some big picture things that we can start addressing and say, you know, all right, how can I just, what can we do, um, you know, in the next five years to move 5% of, of our food purchasing dollars, that revenue into, into the local economy. And, And how could we do that in a way that could perhaps incentivize landowners to, um, you know, give to, to, to create more equitable land access. I mean, you, you know, you, we want to get to the number one issue with new farmers. You know, we have an aging median age. The median age of a farmer is somewhere between 58 and 62. It's so few technical farmers that it's not even included in the census anymore um, as a job in America. Wow. Um, and, and then we've got, and we do have this influx now of like, there's young farmers. This is a thing. There's this potential here. But like, the thing that stops most of us in our tracks, and I'm not one of these, I'm privileged. And I mean, I have a small spot, I have five acres, but I have, I, I, I have no uh, misunderstanding about like the privilege that I do have. I, I could access more land if I truly wanted to, I could do these things, um, but 99% of us can't land access is where this conversation stops and now you want to talk about interconnected injustice let's start talking about land access you know yeah. and, and the fact that you know the book was already written on who gets land and who doesn't a long time ago and and real estate is the is the most foundational wealth that recreates itself um you know so we're talking about like we're 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 stopped before most of us are even have the chance to get started and, and again, I'm not, I, I don't have the capacity. I don't have, I'm not the right voice. I'm not like, I'm not the one that could, could speak into the explicit uh, or the detailed solutions to that. But, but we can call it out when we see it and we can talk about it and we can start to say, okay, how can we connect the dots? Mm. How, can we, how can we take an issue that anybody can get behind, like moving millions of dollars and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that's already spent on food. Like we're not talking about, like let, we're not trying to get people to like downsize their house so they can spend more on, you know, fancy food and all this. Like we're not talking about like premium price points. We're just saying, how can we reallocate money that's already being spent on food that's going in pantries and refrigerators all through our city and our surrounding areas and allocate that into a food system that's within, I don't know, 100 miles or 150 or 200 miles of, of our greater Rochester area. And alongside of that, that will require and then also open the door to maybe restructuring like how, how some farms produce things and how land is used and things like that. So like, let's get that person who's stoked about that on board with the person, um, you know, who works in uh, you know, in, in housing or works in, um, you know, land access or urban planning or, or, or those types of uh, aspects of, of, of this conversation. And then someone that works uh, in, you know, in labor unions and someone who, you know, like, like we stay because I get it because it's exhausting, but, but we, 
almost always like end up getting relegated to our silos of passion. And, and, and I'm not saying that like I do, we all do it because we yeah. don't have a million hours in the day or, uh, you know, like our brains aren't a hundred times bigger and we, we just can't physically handle it, but it doesn't make it good. <laughs> like, you know, silos are bad. Like, yeah, they, yeah. you know, and like, so then, okay, if I can't focus on every part of this problem and you can't focus on every part of it, then what, what type of relational trust do we need to build with each other that we can rely on each other to carry a mutually beneficial load, um, you know, to get to these collective problems to solve? Yeah, yeah. Um, and man, I don't know. I don't know where that starts. I don't know, like, I just like, but th- that's where it is, you know, yeah. like, you know, proximity-based economies, I think, starts the waterfall in my opinion, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, there's a proximity, uh, account of, like proximity and accountability are intimately connected. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. like, so if, if we are moving enough of what we value the most, kind of how we, how we spend our time and money, if we're, if we are, if we are moving that into an arena that we can literally see, taste, touch, you know, it's, it's, it's in our proverbial backyards. Um, there's an inerrant level of accountability that starts to grow from that, you know, where like it's very easy for shitty practices to happen a thousand miles away or 3000 miles away. And for us to not care about them. Um, but when they're happening in our backyard and, and, and that's good and bad, you know, like it, we should care about it, but if we're like, we also, I'm not going to be so, over idealistic that I'm going to say like, we don't, we just don't every day care about right. all the things, you know, like, right. um, cause we've kind of crippled under the weight of it, honestly, because you know, there's just a, it's, we live in a really corrupt, broken, oppressive world. Um, and we can't be back to that, like sacred, unsacred conversation, desecrated conversation. Like, I don't think that we can be crippled by it because then we've, we've given up, we've lost. Um, yeah. we need to, we need to, live in that tension and say man there's a lot of like brokenness and corruption and oppression um but what are what are maybe some of the fundamental the core things that if we move into a more proximity based infrastructure it'll start to change perhaps how we act a little bit even a little bit as a society imagine if we were one percent better as a as like as a society right right like, we're like when we're starting kind of at a low spot, you know, like I'll take one percent. One percent, like that that catalyzes probably a lot of good stuff that could then, you know, start somewhere else. And it's like, man, food, housing, education, like these are the things that I think we start at. Like yeah. if we can get one percent better with food or one percent better with housing, one percent better with education, one percent better with pay equity, one percent better with racial equity. I mean, we need to get at hell of a lot better in all of those aspects but if we could start one percent better in some of these core things like man like we're talking now we're getting like it's it's happening you know right i just think that's where we need to start or else it just stays at um uh planning boards and (laughs) and, you know it stays on um these you know all of our our videos and websites and and great things that we post but they're just ethereal they're words that maybe don't actually put food in people's mouths or roofs over their head or security and um you know the basic fundamental needs that we have um and and it's going to be real hard to have empathy 
if we mm. if we if, if we have a fundamentally broken system on these core levels yeah i think that's a great a great point i'm so glad that you speak about proximity because for me it just keeps coming back to the relationship piece like i think that so many of our problems could be solved if we had deeper more connected more intimate relationships with one another in the earth like we could knock so much shit out if we were just like oh i really know you like i actually know my neighbors or i actually know who grows my food or i actually know the the land that I live on, you know, like we could really begin to move that needle closer, you know? And, and, and that's the thing is like, the thing is so like disheartening, but hopefully there's a shred of hope in there is that like, I think most people know that at the core level that like, and, and, and I think it's, it's, I think we know it and it's why in our own fears and insecurities that we, that we relegate ourselves to our echo chambers and silos because deep down beneath our fears of each other, we know that like if I, if I see your face and I learn your name and I learn your story, like everybody has a name. Yeah. Everybody has a story. And I personally don't believe that any of us came out of the womb fundamentally bad, <laughs> you know, like... Like we all came out of, like, we all started from the same, the womb and I mean the earth really. I think, you know, we, we are all a byproduct of soil. This land, getting back to this. And that's like, that in, like at a base level is good. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. but, but we, we, we remove ourselves from each other. We remove ourselves from the earth. We remove ourselves from the ground up under our feet and and all of a sudden we're just a bunch of faceless names that like you know we just don't connect and we don't have this relationship and then when we do like everything changes yeah i totally agree i want to talk take a a little bit of pivot yeah um because i heard rumor that you are a hunter that you hunt i so yeah (laughs) so i um you know we're you're speaking about tension and I'm interested to know your origin story with hunting. Like, is, was this something that you grew up doing or is it something you came to later in life? Like, what's the origin story there? Yeah, why? So, yes, the answer is yes, both of those. Um, uh, and, and it was super fun listening to you and Daniel talk about this too. Um, so like, my, I mean, like I grew up like my dad hunter his dad's hunter you know grew up in like a hunting family um it's certainly like the the thing my dad would say is like his pastime um okay. it always has been so like i grew up when i was really young like i would go out with him more often like before i could even legally hunt and i would just go out and you know and try to like you know i'd walk through push hedgerow like walk through you know pieces of pieces of uh, like hedges and stuff and try to drive deer and things like that and you know and, and he'd take me out and um like and, you know he got me a 22 and we go plank that around at targets and things like that but um pretty much like as I came to like legal hunting age um I just I wasn't like I don't even remember being like actively disinterested in it but I just became really uh engulfed in just other pursuits like uh like that's so why I started. I started playing soccer, and that became like I played very seriously, very competitively, um, all through my adolescence. That took up year-round, four or five days a week. Um, that different stuff, and then you know, I was snowboarding and skiing and all these things. So like, I just had kind of like other hobbies come in, and that's how I just spent all my time. Um, and it was just for no good or bad reason. 
Um, but I, I always had this, like, I never had a, there wasn't like a bad experience. Sometimes you hear like, you know, people that had like their parents or their grandparents were hunters and they kind of had this like departure from it for maybe bad or unrelated reasons to like the stereotypical lifestyle or culture, what have you around it. Um, none of that was the case. It just didn't, it didn't happen for me. Um, and I kind of like always had this like back of my head thing, like it'll happen sometime, but like I, you know, when it happens, it happens. Um, and it just so happened, like, you know, obviously I'm very connected to like out being outside in nature and being outdoors. I spend the majority of my life outside and, and, you know, touching living things in the ground, um, you know, in and around the woods, things like that. I mean, my hobbies are also, you know, backpacking and hiking and doing all these things. And um, pretty much everything I like to do is involves being outside, but it just didn't click for a while. And uh, I, my wife and I would joke about it because she would like ask every now and then. And um, I'm like, yeah, you know, like when it happens, it happens, but I don't want to force it because um, I also know that when it happens, like I have a very, very um, intense reaction to the things that I'm compelled to do. <laughs> like uh, um, I'm kind of either in it 1000% or I don't do it. Um, so I also didn't want to like jump, I kind of knew what was coming when that, that time came and it just so happened that like this spring, so about 10 years ago, my dad kind of got exclusively into bow hunting. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, I mean, he still has shotguns and rifles and does occasionally. I think he actually, the, the deer he killed last year, he got with his shotgun because he didn't get out with his bow much um, during the early bow season. But that's like his thing. He's become like way more, even way more obsessed since he started doing that the last 10 years or so. But they lived in um, the Midwest for most of that time and they're recently back to New York. Um, and so like kind of, I, I'm sure that that had a lot to do with it. Him coming back, we started talking about it more and, um I eventually like oh like bring your bow over like I'll shoot it and like I that first time I drew back the bow I was just like I'm done this is it <laughs> this is just like there's something you know there was like some immediate thing that was just really connected um about that like I just like it was enjoyable it was fun I did but I, I felt connected um, I love this I I kind of said it before but I, I just read this um that uh so you talked about like, like in like the meat eater, you know, show and those guys and that crew, Mark Kenyon, one of the guys in that crew, he kind of focuses on the white tailed deer side of things. Um, he has a book called that wild country that I'm mm. reading about like, uh, kind of like his exploration of America's public lands, their history and where they're going. Um, and, he, and in any case, he's talking about the story where he's going fishing and when like he hooks a fish, it's like, you are like in that moment, you're tethered to like this other life. Mm. Um, better or worse for good or bad however you want to start wrestling through that ethic like there's like this connection there and that's kind of like this thing that like I felt like man like this is like tethering me to something um something that's like kind of I'm on the edge of like and uh so in any case like that 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 switch flipped and um it's honestly like because that's so why I, I bought a bow and I'm you know I'm, I'm preparing to hunt this season nice nice thing about the bow is that like I don't have a big property I can't like go shoot guns out my backyard or anything um but I so I every single night after I put my girls down I can go out you know just rip a few arrows at target and practice because um it's something that I take very seriously like and um you know I'd like proficiency is more than just the desire to like I don't have just like an explicit desire to kill something. I have a desire to be proficient in this, in this activity that I'm engaging in this relationship that I'm engaging in to, to, um, 
to eat meat, you know, and, and to connect with this, to, to whatever term you want to use, harvest or kill or, or slaughter, whatever. Um, I've done plenty of that in the farming side of things on and off. I've raised pasture chickens and, um, you know, I help my friends process Thanksgiving turkeys and I've, I've, we've slaughtered our own pigs in the past and, um, you know, fed friends and family with those. Um, and, and kind of a, uh, precursor here, uh, an asterisk here, like, I don't, there's not like a, like a, like, I don't like killing things, <laughs> you know, like I've done, I do it, like I, I make plans to do it, but that doesn't mean that it's like this thing, but like I'm, I'm connected to it. Um, and I, and again, to talk about that tension, like, I think there's a tension, like, and I, like, I'm not speaking for anybody else. I'm speaking for me and my experience. Um, but for me, like, I, I can't, uh, I don't know how to, how best word this, but like, uh, I mean, there's no good way to word it. You're obviously some people connect, some people don't. Do it. Yeah. Um, we're predators. Like we are. Um, and, and I don't think that that's wrong. Uh, I don't think that we can say what's right or wrong with what the universe has already decided for us. Uh, It doesn't mean that I think everybody has to do it, but, um, but I think we have a place in this story. And, and I think uh, without, I, there, there's always the danger of oversimplifying any people, uh, group who identify with certain things. So I certainly don't want to do that. But I do think like there's a, uh, a fear, I think, or uh, there's a, a leeriness that I have. Um, I, I find that, not exclusively, but I think that uh, when, we, when we approach that negatively, just just cut and dry. There's no good version of it. It's all bad. Killing animals is bad. Hunting is bad. All these things about it is bad. Um, we've, to me, it's like a red flag that, that perhaps you have so far removed yourself from the natural system that that you've lost like a a, a necessary connection. Um, you know, like we, like and 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 honestly, if I'm gonna like I'm gonna be honest, it's a little bit ironic to me that we have that critique and this goes back to shame I think even that you Mm. talked about we have that critique of ourselves but I very rarely find the person that critiques the human consumption of meat or the human and get act of hunting that they critique the other apex predators out there they don't critique the wolf or the bear or you know even when the bear is trying to come get you like you know (laughs) like well, I just like sometimes I, there's a that's confusing to me if I'm honest. Mm-hmm, like how mm-hmm. how how do we uh, kind of in this weird way we both anthropomorphize the you know, charismatic megafauna, you know, like the uh, but at the same time we're, we're removing ourselves even from that. Like you know, we kind of I don't know. I just struggle with it. I feel like I don't think everyone that thinks this is this, but I think that there's a there's to me that's a very uh, non-earth-centric and elitist point of view. I think you have to be, I honestly think that you have to be incredibly arrogant to remove yourself from the predator-prey conversation, from, from, it doesn't mean anyone, everyone has to eat meat, but like to acknowledge that this is an active part of what we do. Um, you know, and, and let me tell you, like growing vegetables is, there is so much death of living things. Like, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. That's also, there's a little bit of disconnect and misunderstanding as to how plants grow and how they, not only how they grow, but how they thrive. Yeah. Like plants, like 
we would not, I would not be looking outside right now, even in an urban context and looking at lush green trees and, 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 and vibrant plant life if there was never dead beings <laughs> that, that, that put themselves into that ground. Like that is a fucking beautiful thing. And <laughs> a level of competition too. Yeah. A level of competition between the species. I think I totally agree with you. I actually was just reading um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Kimmer. Kimmer, And um, she, in it, like, you know, it's um, from the perspective of she's a Native American woman and it's from Mm -hmm. the perspective of indigenous people and their relationship to food and their relationship to hunting. And um, she talks about hunting a little bit less, but in the book she talks about the language of animacy, which mm-hmm. is a lot of indigenous languages use the language of animacy, which illiter- essentially means speaking to all of the beings in the species as beings, as subject rather than object. And I love, I've heard about the language of animacy before, but reading this book, it really came clear to me how important it is because I think in conversations like this, where it's like, we're all a part of the circle. Like we're all one in this, like there's no hierarchy. And so like part of the circle is the death and the life. And that's one of the reasons why I've gotten really interested in hunting because, and it's, I didn't even make this connection when I was talking to Daniel, but for me, I've studied a lot of of Buddhist philosophy Mm -hmm. and you know, talking about hunting and Buddhism is, is real dangerous because of the whole nonviolence piece. But yeah. how I um, interpret that is, or the reason why I, I've come to Buddhism is because I needed to have a context. I needed to have language. I needed to have a spiritual ethic around dealing with death. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason why I decided I wanted to hunt because I needed to have a relationship with death. And I think, unfortunately, in our society, we do not have relationship. We do have relationship with death, but we just completely stuff it and stuff it and stuff it. And so death becomes this thing that you're so terrified of. You want, you're always trying to get away from it, always trying to avoid. And I'm not saying, you know, hey, come to my doorstep, death, you know. But it's something that invites us it invites us to itself so that it can give to the next. Yeah. And like, and that's this thing. There's a participatory context here. And, yeah. um, and it goes back to, I mean, and, and I, I've heard you kind of talk about this before, but like it goes back to just like, we're becoming increasingly bad at nuance and at tension. And this is like, this is where this conversation lies for me. Cause it's like, you like, there's a, this is complex enough and we can give ourselves enough credit to say that like, I don't need to thirst for this in some type of like um, commodified way or like this like thing that like, I'm just scratching this itch or I just like, this is just like a pleasure center kind of thing for me. But it's this participatory thing that like, man, it's weird, it's hard, it's confusing. Like I had this, uh, there's a rabbit that was uh, just, crushing my lettuce um <laughs> like i mean i don't know at least between five hundred thousand dollars worth of lettuce oh my um, god and that's like a big deal for me you know that's like that's like not cool that's so a lot I of said, lettuce like, I, this is like a couple months ago yeah like each night you know he comes out and just snipes like whatever um starts working through a bed and so like i've been 
I had been like, you know, feeling more and more proficient with the bow. And I was like, I'm like, it's like, it's go time. Like I am going to try to take this rabbit's life. Um, and I did. And like, it was, it was a, a that's, so that was the first animal that I've killed with the bow. Like I've, I've slaughtered chickens before in the context of the farm. And like I said, pigs and turkeys and things like that. But this was the first time that I like in this micro little interaction, like it was micro hunt. Like, yeah. you know, it was just in my backyard. I like popped up behind this little tree stump that I have. And he was kind of over about 25 yards away by my pack shed laying down in the grass. And, you know, I made that decision and I took a breath and let the arrow fly. And like a minute and a half later, like he was, confirm like you know that he had expired and like i i killed this thing and like i i did not like feel fun like i was not happy like like i wouldn't so like i was not like fist pumping my hands were shaking yeah because i was like this was like this was a conscious decision that had real implications but i would make that decision again yeah um, because i'm just like there is a relationship that i don't feel like i can escape because mm, we because yeah. the thing is is like we think that we're escaping it every day i mean yeah. we go to goddamn wegmans and go get our our beef and we we kill i mean we're killing every day but we're just complicit in that we have no connection to that I and think, that's, yeah. sorry go ahead no no that's i think that i you're just it's 100 percent on point in my opinion because there is this disconnected complicity um and and again i, I, I again bearing the risk of an overgeneralization i find that Maybe if you were to pull, this is anecdotal, I can't point to exact data, so someone fact check me if this is un, untrue, but it seems as though maybe the centers of, of more of these like sediments and movements are gonna be in more urban contexts and people that are like, you know, like just to be a jerk and say it, but like your quote unquote Brooklyn type crowd or whatever, you know, and, and this or not everyone Brooklyn, but you know, just like the, the, I think probably we understand where I'm getting. Yeah, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Like, you know, and it's just like, man, like you're defining this ethic, one, completely disconnected or largely disconnected from the natural world. And two, you're doing it in a way that you're kind of just, you're e either unaware or intentionally, I think most people are unaware, less, but like you're masking your complicity. Like you think yes. that you're not complicit in death because you don't eat meat or you don't hunt or that you are uh, anti hunting or anti this um and it's like man like we've talked about for the first hour already like the world is way too way too connected for us to think that we are not deeply complicit Ooh, in, yeah. in all of its messiness you know i know and like i i actually wrote today i scribbled out this like byline of like i like i'm trying to start to write more about some of my my thoughts about food and all these things and um and like the, 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 the kind of my first draft byline was um, the avocado, the cauliflower rice, and the, uh, the apex predator, a conversation on complicity and cognitive dissidence. And I think that that's what we're talking about. Like we have this cognitive dissidence that we, that we, that we put one thing, we use one set of logic to critique and build a framework against something. Um, you know, it's something that Daniel talked about too, to keep referencing back to him. Like we're so like, we're becoming more and more in, enthralled of what we are not and what we are against and defining ourselves by like, I don't do X, I am against X. Mm. And we use a set of logic for that. But then we use a completely different set of logic when we buy avocados. And like, do you know how 
messed up the supply chain for like the most glorified food is among you know the the I don't know the the whatever we are like I, right. I don't know <laughs> the granola you know, folks <laughs> yeah for anything from just you know like all right let's like in the cauliflower rice you know like we want to like you know we like we we are none of us want to eat gluten anymore because you know we don't want to like a lot of people yeah there's some issues there but like but maybe we can start talking about like the big picture the root cause of it like what what's happening and and, and how we produce grains and how we you know have industrialized production of of products and stuff is that we kind of just shed that and we all say like like somehow i don't i don't i guess i don't understand where the bridge connected between it becoming like almost feeling like gluten can be like a moral issue <laughs> like bread like you know like like i eat like cauliflower pasta or cauliflower rice like not because i you have celiacs or you have like some intolerance but because it's become on trend yeah. um then like i'm saying this to get to a point i'm not trying to say that no one should eat those things or cauliflower is bad but let's talk about the interconnectedness that we were referring to before and let's talk about working conditions yes in the farms in California that are growing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of cauliflower that we can meet a new commodified demand for some product that was kind of propped up by this false ethic around something like gluten like or something like that. And I know that that's like a little bit of like a kind of probably sound like a crazy person to some people. But I think like we need to connect these dots sometimes. Oh, yeah. And like and like that's what I'm talking about cognitive dissidence too of like, you know, killing an animal is bad, but like, let's talk about the working conditions and, and let's talk about the, the uh, economic implications of the supply chains of avocados and cauliflower and things like that. Well, like, let's really connect the dots. And now we have just like, we're all sitting in a huge pile of complicity and we all have to talk about how we can make the best decisions to, to ebb and flow out of it. Yeah, work I think into a better decision-making process. It's no longer I'm good because I don't do this, and you're bad because you do. It's man, this whole food system or how our, our just our role in nature is messy. It's, but we are all complicit, and we all need to talk about it. <laughs> yes, I that perfect. I think it's perfect because like, oh God, it did. My my partner, my boyfriend, he was uh, just telling me about the like avocado cartels in Mexico. And like the people who die over avocados and shit yeah. just because of Western need and desire for goddamn avocados. Exactly. Not to say anything about the degradation of the largest uh, uh, migratory grounds for monarch butterflies. You know, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the connectedness, it's always, it's always, it's always connected. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. Yeah. There's, oh there's my God. To all these things. And it's like, man, so like, you know, that's, that's why I want to hunt. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, like there's just this, uh, yeah, I'm trying to own it. And I think that, I think that that's, you know, in, in ways that far transcend just talking about food and hunting, but, uh, you know, and that are much more visceral in the world right now, but owning complicity is where we all need to start. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. and that's yeah. where we communicate, you know, and, 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 and it's, and, and it, I, I, it's, it's a weird thing. I feel like it's a, like, I'm a white male, so it's weird for me to say this, but I think that like, to a certain extent, we all have to start with saying, let's own our complicity. And then, like you said, like, let's not drown in the shame of it, but let's, right. be, let's be human enough 
to work through it, to own it and pull ourselves out of it and unlearn things and be teachable and, and all of these things together. But let's not be buried in the shame of it because we are all deserving yes. of, of, of equity. <laughs> yes. Know? And we're deserving of one another. I keep thinking about that piece. Like, it's like the shame separates you and me. And like, in order for us to get out of all of this mess from like the food system to the justice stuff to the, the equity stuff, it comes back to the relationship. It comes back to our ability to be in community and to learn from one another and, from, and to be accountable to one another. Um, because I think that that's really, really where we have truly gone wrong we have really gone wrong and that's where that empathy like that's where that door for empathy comes back yeah again all of a sudden all of a sudden like we both have narratives and we both Mm -hmm. know them and like like I, i just believe that when we allow empathy to connect us like those walls just come down they yeah. just do, you know, yeah. and that goes obviously from like a human to human perspective, but it also, you know, and then from what, you know, the base conversation that we're talking about here, that comes, you know, that it also goes to our connection with just being a participation, being a participant in this living earth and this, you know, and like, there's just, there's so much there. It leaves room for both respect and predation, you know, it leaves it leaves room for all of these things to coexist in this like beautiful messiness. And, and that's also like getting back to like your, the, your previous question of, um, you know, to the person that wants to, the, like the person like so many of us, there's just like into this, you know, compelled by plants and growing things and, and food and all this. Like that's something too that I would just say over and over and over again, you will learn just about the beautiful messiness of it all i mean like like especially when you're trying to talk about growing food like organically and regeneratively and you know our response is not to just um you know solve our problems of like pests or weed control with um synthetic inputs but it like but that also then opens us up to just like it's just the wild west out there. <laughs> you know, you've got all the, like, you've got pests that come in and just destroy the stuff that you're trying to grow. And, you know, then you've got, you've got good bugs and bad bugs and good weeds and bad weeds and fundamental disease, like our fungal diseases and all these things. And like, it's just messy. There's nothing romantic about it. Yeah. When you actually start watching the theater <laughs> play out, like you're watching like the, just craziest most traumatic like heavy stuff this is like the stuff of like greek mythology you know (laughs) it's like gods and man like you know just like at war with each other but it's like in this context of this this beautiful nourishment growing but it's nourishment that i'm gonna rip from the earth and eat and feed myself you know and others so like it's just like that's something that always always comes to my mind in talking to people like i love i love that it seems like um there's this kind of critical mass we're reaching critical mass of like a desire of reconnectedness this this Mm -hmm. pull towards just plants and living things in the in the soil like i love that like it seems like at least in 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 certain contexts we're reaching that critical point where like it's it's like this majority thing that's taking over i love that connection um 
but man, that's when we have to be super careful that like we don't just like whitewash it and 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 yeah. do the same thing that like oppressors have been doing forever, <laughs> you know, just like and and just like do the same thing of just like man, like you know, it's just oh yeah, it just I'm just gonna keep it. I'm gonna kind of throw all that stuff under, you know, and it just house plants are beautiful, you know, and my little garden is beautiful and stuff, and it's like. It's not all like that, you know, and, yeah. it, and, it, and it becomes funny sometimes. And I'm certainly not, I like the farthest thing I'm trying to do is compare like, you know, the growing of food to the equitable treatment of people. But like, it, human nature is just funny because, you know, we, we find it like, we just, we react, the same triggers flip kind of in whatever context that we put it in, um, you know, and, and, and I think we have the, the, the same dangers for us to kind of silo and hyper simplify um you know no matter the context it's just our tendency because i don't know probably a lot of reasons um but yeah it's just something that always comes to mind and then it's always funny you know when you get like the the instagram dms or whatever of people like you know kind of like the backseat driver that's like a gardener <laughs> you know i wish you didn't do this or i wish you did like this because there's a full scope you know like i I, I would classify the way that we grow food at Deep Root Farm as organic and regenerative with minimal tillage. But there are people that are way farther along and they would probably look at what I did as quasi-conventional, you know, because I, you know, use uh, plastic tarps to kill weeds and, you know, like, which is a very, very, very common thing. But some people are like hyper, hyper no-till and hyper no-disturbance, you know, and like um, no day, like all these things, you know, there's all that to say there's always a spec. You know, so it doesn't matter where you are on the equation. Like, there's always going to be somebody on the other side that's like, mm, you're not quite there enough. You're not quite good enough. And, and that's also, I would also, like, pass this on as, a, as whatever value or weight that it would carry to anybody listening. Like, you're doing just fine, whatever. <laughs> you know, like, I don't care if you need to put, like, a pot of fertilized, infused, miracle grow soil in a pot and grow some tomatoes and some flowers next year or something like that. Like that is good to me. Like that is one step closer to connecting. Like, you know, like the, the I just, man, when we put like parameters on it, it's just gotta be like, you, you fall in this category um, to, to check off the box of you're doing it the right way or the wrong way. Um, you know, that's just a dangerous place to be. And, and I certainly don't want to, I have the tendency to do that. We all have the tendency to do that. But then I look at myself and think like introspectively, like, do I want to live up to like the standards by which I judge other people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like me, like that's a slippery slope, you know, like put yourself on a pedestal that far and like you got a long way to fall. Like, you know, and it's like, and even like in my context, you know, I live in Wayne County. Um, people think it's like East Jesus. My wife works. <laughs> in Clinton Square downtown and it's 20, 25 minutes. But, you know, you say like National Lane County, like way out there. But, you know, there's certainly a different, um, you know, physical and social landscape. Um, and it's definitely more, you know, just like for our region, it would be getting into like the heart of, you know, just farm country. And it's certainly not farms mostly like what we do. You know, it's not mostly small scale or medium size, you know, diverse operations, vegetables, it's corn and soy and everything that you would think. And we drive through the Finger Lakes and stuff like that. And, uh, and even that, when we talk about names and faces and stories and connecting with people and, and, you know, loving each other in that way and connecting on that level, um, 
I, I've tried to evolve a lot in that sense too, because the you know, first number of years when you dive into something you're so passionate about, it's very easy to get into that narrow framework of like, you know, I just, everything, because I can talk about conventional agriculture with no names or faces and I can talk about this and like, you know, it's very easy to just vilify it. And, to, and we just think that anybody that does that is just must be an asshole, you know, like mm. must be these things. And it's like, wow, we're taking that out of context, you know, like, let's talk about the, the agricultural system that we built in the 1940s and, you know, and, and why we built it. Like, we were in a world war and, like, you know, we, like, there was, like, lives on the line and manufacturing had to happen, like, just some crazy things going on and there's a real, and, and people in power, whether they were well-intended or ill-intended, they made decisions. I don't think all of them at all times were, like, malicious when they made right. these decisions about how we started building an agricultural infrastructure, um, you know, in mid-century. But what we did is we didn't change it fast enough, and, you know, and, we, and we've gotten to where we are largely because of the decisions we made then and, and, and through then, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, and how we've built big ag up and created this, you know, subsidy-reliant, fossil fuel reliant, you know, get bigger, get out style of industrial farming. And that is inherently bad to me. However, the people that have been doing it are not inherently bad. And, right. you know, like, and, and we, I mean, we are all put into a context. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot, a lot more often than not at a base level, people are trying to do the best they can in the context they have. Not everybody, absolutely. But I think that if, I think if, we, if we really get down to it, that's what it is. So like when I'm driving by these farms, it's not like all these people are bad people. Like, you know, and, and I think, again, it goes back to that disconnect when maybe like your context for farmers and farming is just the farmer's market where you get to like meet us and talk to us. And, you know, it's mostly more farmers like what I do. Um, it's even that much easier to kind of caricature and vilify like anyone that does it differently. Uh, all of that to say like, man, there's this big scope, there's this big scale and, and, and threshold and there's good people in every part of it. Yeah. And, and hopefully we, we, we can change the system on a large scale because it has to change or we're screwed. Um, but that doesn't make the like people, we're also people trying to do it. And I think yeah. we should start there instead of like critiquing and caricaturing. You know, and it's just something that I've learned a lot and I think I value a lot. Again, something that, you know, I, I, I just super, super loved when you talked about like your hunting experience and getting into it, specifically in the context of like, you know, I am a, like when you were saying like, you are like, I'm a radical person with like these progressive views, but like, I want to engage with quote unquote, like these people on the other side of maybe like my- That was so bright. <laughs> um, because you want to know them, not because you're like trying to like arm up in, in a com like an argument and like, you know, like I'm trying to like sneak into the enemy's camp and figure out like, you know, I can attack them from the inside. It's like, like you just wanted to like, you want to know people different than you, you know? And like, and that's like, I just love that because that's what we need. And that, that is not mutually exclusive with like a dilution of your own ideals mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you can engage with each other and be and be friends with each other and and love and care for each other 
and still be viscerally opposed on certain things. And, and really, and, but that gives us the context to challenge each other and grow from each other. And if I thought, one of the things that like it made me think of um, that, that I think of often these days is like, and back to your, like even what makes you, you question, like if we, if we are so like arrogantly and staunchly like grounded in all of the views that we have this very day, that is like a super depressing place to be because that's assuming I have nowhere to go tomorrow or like next day, like, or that like in five years, I'm not going to think something very differently about X, like fill in the blank. Right. Like, and, 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 and I, and for me again, I'm not to be cheesy, but like, I just keep bringing it like, this is stuff that like growing food teaches you like, you mm. know, stuff that like, you know, change and, and, and evolution and seasons and, you know, like, the fact that there's so many environmental factors that can you can have your your, your whole framework set one direction how you, how you organize how you're going to approach this growing season or how to approach this crop or approach working with the soil in this way and an environmental factor out of your control comes to, comes to bear and you completely change and you learn something completely new about the piece of ground that that, that you're standing on that you're working and it's like man there's like a beauty in that evolution yeah yeah completely agree completely agree i I think it's really important for us today to begin to think about how we can step outside of ourselves Mm -hmm. how we can step outside of our own knowledge base and stop being so goddamn narcissistic because like (laughs) we've got there's like no place to go but back together because the more that we separate the just deeper shit we're going to be in from all angles and all walks of it so and i totally agree i do not think it's too romantic to say that growing food teaches you that i was thinking about um i had this really high moment i smoke weed and i was i was smoking And I was sitting on my porch looking at my Monstera plant. And it had this gorgeous new, like, um, uh, just baby leaf. It's like this bright green. You know how when the plant first comes out, it's like this beautiful, bright color green. And then there was another one that's like um, dying off. And I was like, I had this split moment of being like, damn, I wish all of them can look like you. All of the leaves could look like this one beautiful baby plant. And, you know, my high brain, which I think oftentimes is like my higher self speaking. But (laughs) I like sat and I was like, no, like this is why you grow plants. To see the like diversity of life to and appreciate the death and the rebirth and everything that comes in between. And the patience, I was like thinking about that too. I was like, if you, cause you know, it's so trendy for folks in our generation and you know, whatever to like have the house plants. Like everyone wants house plants everywhere. Da, 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 da. I'm like, if your house plants hasn't taught you some level of patience, yeah, some yeah. level of understanding, some level of peace, what the fuck you got these house plants for? Because like, they're this, really? you know, like this is the, this is the reason. And so I just sat my little high ass on my balcony and just stared at my Monstera until I could get like all that it was there to give me to teach. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely don't think it's corny to be like, grow some food, get in relationships with some earth. And some I think it's, I think it's, uh, um, like I said, I mean, I have a, like I had a, 
deeply religious background. I even started my undergrad studying biblical studies, like religious studies. So like I had this like deep, deep framework of, in my own experience of like theology, you know, like kind of like, like, and this desire was fueled by that, like to like try to like understand God and understand spirituality and connectedness and, and like my place in it, our place in it and things like that. And, and again, I really don't, even though I've kind of departed or evolved to a much, much different iteration of that. Um, I don't look back at it negatively. Kind of like, I mean, you're talking about like, even like linking like trying to like Buddhism to, to hunting and stuff. It's like, there's like this, this was a catalyst. This was like a, this was a seed, you know, for like an apt metaphor, I think, um, to start something in me. And, uh, and I just, it was what's so beautiful for me in my experience and my evolution and journey is that like, as that started to maybe shift, it's like, it was like at the same time that I felt like the soil, like picked it up, like picked, mm. like, like that, like passed the baton almost in a sense that like, man, like I feel like the soil and, and having so much education and, and reading thousands and thousands of pages on philosophy and theology and all these things. It's like, man, the soil has taught me innumerably more things about God and spirituality and connectedness and, and deity, you know, in general, like that. Yeah. I love this one author, uh, Richard Rohr calls the divine flow of, mm. you know, just that, that, that kind of connects everything and all of us and it's like there's like real and it's not all just heady but it's like deep and tangible lessons and it's like real like it's like it's it's actually like speaking in this sense that like you 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 finish the day like having learned something having been taught something um and and like i now had like you know like i started day and i finished the day now with a shifted orientation and the slightly evolved worldview having not talked to anybody Mm. but but i was surrounded by teachers and surrounded by life and surrounded by lessons interactions happening and it's like wow that's just like that you know there's there's so much there and like and that's i think you know everything from eating food to uh, smoking weed like the the earth has a lot to give to us a lot to give to us um you know i just i just posted something the other day that was like you know i just it doesn't you can't force this um it happens like maybe not even every year like we like to trial a lot of new stuff um you know obviously because it's just fun you know like varieties tomatoes peppers whatever um and not every year but every so often like there's like game-changing moments like you take a bite of something and it's like, and I, and this is where I, I try actively not to hyper romanticize things because I really want to live in the moments that this really matters. Um, cause so much of what I grow, like I, I get like this joy, this deep joy from like eating all of these vegetables and all these plants and they're all just delicious. And, and, but there's these moments, oh, it's a variety or a perfect the right something um and it just happens and there's this um 
there's this uh, pepper that we trialed this year. It's this Italian heirloom. It's this like thin-skinned red kind of small bell pepper. And it's super, super, one of the sweetest red bell peppers I've oh ever had. But it's got this like, slightly like sub jalapeno heat to it as well mm. like it just was a mind fuck like, <laughs> changer since like the first time i tried the first ripe one like i don't know two months ago maybe six weeks ago like i think about it every single day i oh think about gosh. it but you like it's what you need to start a relationship with somebody and and like all you start thinking about is like I want to know them more. I want to ask them another question. I want to get to know them a little bit more. I like. I want to. I want to understand them a little bit deeper. And I know that this sounds like crazy to a lot of people, Mm-mm. but like, that's what it happened. Every now and then, that's what happens with these things. And like this pepper, it's like I'm not kidding. Like almost every day, I'm like, I need to taste it one more time. Like mm. I did something there. Like I need to like I need to get there again and figure out what's happening here. Like why is this happening to me? Why am I so compelled by this one? I grow a ton of different great, great pepper varieties, but like this one just did something. Yeah. Yeah. Man, it's like flavor is like, and I, I, I posted something like, you know, like, I don't know, it wasn't like that profound or anything, but something like, I feel like flavor is like nature's way of like giving us hope. Mm. You know, like, like, it's just like, like you can do, you can experience something like that. And it's just like, that is embedded with, I think, a deepness that goes far beyond like just eating, you know, like that's embedded with something like really, really important and like spiritual to me. And it's just like, yes. that's what I love about it, you know, and just like, that's where it's like, it does, there's just so much to teach. There's so much, to, there's so much to be taught from, um, you know, when it comes to just plants and growing things. And, and that's another, that's, that's why I'm compelled to it. Like, it's just, they kind of mentioned, I feel like it's infinitely simple and unromantic. Like when you're on your hands and knees and pulling weeds and things, you know, deer eat stuff and bugs eat stuff and all this and stuff, but it's also infinitely complex and it's never ending. And like, I, there's, I'm, I'm not, I'm never, I'm never really interested in something that doesn't take a lifetime to get good at. Mm-hmm. Like, like I love, like I've past years, I've, I've really did, uh, dove into like fly fishing because it's it's hard to get good at you can never master it you know you you read about the men and women that have been doing it you know for 40 or 50 years and you know they're still talking about learning new things and it's like it's, it's hunting honestly it's it's growing food it's it's all of these things it's like it's just I, I need to experience it every day I'll never get good at it yeah. but like I will be intrigued every single day in some small way that I do you know that I that I practice at it that I engage with it and I, I don't, that. don't know what else you what else is worth pursuing you know I don't know what else is what else we're here for <laughs> right. right absolutely absolutely <laughs> I love that so much well before I ask you the last question tell everyone where they can find you, how they can support sure. yeah, yeah. you. Um, so Deep Root Farm is our farm. Um, we grow diverse veggies. Um, we have a CSA that we do throughout the season, 20 week kind of membership from June to October. Um, we, we, dropped, we have members out by us um, that, that come kind of right in our Gananda Masson community. We drop some downtown right in the city. 
And then um, I'm also at the Brighton Market every Sunday. Um, as we all know, this season's a little wonky. The market's a little wonky, but it's there. We're there. Um, you know, just with crazy logistics, our demand and, and, and our supply is, you know, all over the place this year, but we're there every week. We've got stuff every week. Um, so yeah, that's where we are this year, especially we've leaned really heavy into the CSA um, because that's what was known in March and that's what the demand was. So we're really connected with our, our members and that's just, just like a beautiful way to stay connected directly with your consumers. Um, but we also do sell to restaurants. Um, we haven't lately because we've been so tied up with the CSA, but that's something that um, I'm stoked about um, getting, we had, we, we took a bit of a break this season, but moving forward, um, I just love the, love the chefs in this city and love the, the food in this city. And there's just some really, really awesome, really awesome people, um, you know, places that we love. Uh, and and uh, it's fun to work with, with them. Um, so that's something that, that we'll continue to do. But yeah, so catch us at the Brighton Market or um, Instagram or at Deep Root Farm. Um, and, and that's where, you know, we, we tell stories and we hang out digitally and, you know, let people know what we're up to. Um, and, and yeah, that's something that I'm excited there's the, the we're kind of exploring a bit of a, an evolution even on that front and and with our business model moving forward things I'm sure like a lot of people we learned a lot of things this year and put in this context I'm really excited about next year and what that will bring um, I'm hoping to to do some things that will connect us even more with um, like the, just like the home gardener um, and and just like you know we want to try to be a resource there to people. Um, going to connect more with some restaurants and uh even just connect more with people on a little bit more of like exploring what what food resilience means like to us um like as a family you know and and, and start sharing a bit more on that hunting journey and um doing some more kind of homesteading projects in tandem with farming projects on, on our own property and stuff so I'm, I'm super stoked about that so follow along if you're interested in that as well that's amazing i'm super excited to see all of that unfold um so what is lighting you up right now um <laughs> it's funny it's hunting obviously <laughs> <laughs> obviously that's like you know we're getting towards october when when the bow season starts and i'm just i am just super excited about that obviously as uh you know i just um wax and waned about uh this acelio red pepper has got me pretty fired up right now <laughs> um you know, i'm just uh um I'm excited about a lot of that stuff, excited about moving forward. I'm sure that many people can empathize. And it's not as negative as it sounds, but I'm pretty fired up about this season kind of winding down, <laughs> you know, just as we all are probably like, or many of us are kind of stoked about the opportunity for hopefully a reset a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, as we venture through 2020 into 2021 and just what all that looks like. Um, but, but honestly, I hope that, that maybe that can encourage other people too, that like, that idea of being fired up about something right now can maybe feel a little hard to find. Um, but uh, to know that what we can be stoked on is the opportunity to evolve, the opportunity mm. to change, the opportunity um, to, to explore something new. And it doesn't, you know, we don't have to just be defined by whatever maybe difficult situation we find ourselves in at the moment. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty stoked about that in kind of a big picture way of just, um, you know, what the, what the coming season so bring. I'm a farmer. I'm always stoked about the next season. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Eric, for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I, I really, really appreciate it. It was, it's, it was a lot of fun to chat. It's been awesome. So what you think? I feel like, 
local food is, is relatively an easy solution to a whole lot of problems. And to like support it, get involved, just going down to your local farmer's market, signing up for a local CSA, checking out the local section in your, your grocery store, all of that can make a big difference um, in supporting local economies, supporting the earth and sustainability, um, and supporting your body and nourishment and your just spiritual connection to the land that's underneath your feet. So that's it, y'all. Thank you for being here as always. Thank you for supporting. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for doing all the things. Um, please keep doing it so we can keep growing. I'm really excited for what's to come. Um, so yeah, have an incredible week. I will see you at the next episode. Bye. One of the hardest parts of wanting to eat healthy, local, and sustainable is finding quality organic meat that has a sustainable purpose. What's amazing about today's sponsor, Buttermeat Co., is that they, all of their meat has been aged for five or seven years. And what that literally means is the cows have had a full life creating and producing over 80,000 pounds of milk, cheese, and butter, and then are used for their beef. What's cool about dual purpose beef is that it has a 50% smaller carbon footprint than traditional beef. It works harder for the environment and even harder for your taste buds. So if you're interested in trying out Butter Meat Co's dual purpose beef, go ahead and check them out and use code NEKID, N-E-K-K-I-D, for 10% off at checkout and free delivery in the Rochester, New York area.